So if you want to turn to Mark 16, we'll start in Mark 16, boy, the last chapter of Mark. All righty. Mark 16, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they had looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said to them, Well, be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. And literally, the Greek says he has been raised. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you in the Galilee, and there you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went out and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. And after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, and neither believed they them. And afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now let's bow our heads and pray. And Heavenly Father, as Nehemiah said, you are the great and terrible God, yet you keep covenant and mercy with those that love you and obey your commandments. And so we come before you, Father, and uh, just ask you to open our minds and our heart to this great truth of the resurrection and uh, just impress it upon our hearts. And I ask you to give us all hearts to hear, and we just thank you for your presence here, and we acknowledge that tonight. In Jesus' name. Alrighty. So, you know, we had, we talked last week, the same women that actually witnessed his crucifixion. And we saw at the end of chapter 15, verse 47, they made a note. They carefully noted where he had been buried. And it's these same women are the first ones they come at the beginning of the week, the first day of the week, to anoint his body. And when they get there, what do they find? not what they were expecting. So they didn't come expecting an empty tomb or a resurrection, did they? None of them were looking for that. Hadn't registered with them. They're coming to anoint his corpse, his dead body. That's what they thought. And instead, they find an empty tomb. So I want to talk about the resurrection. I'm going to probably deal more with the actual what's going on in here in these verses that we just read, probably more next week. I don't want to begin to talk about the crucifixion. And the significance of that in the empty tomb, the impact, it's just a tremendous impact. You know, Thomas Jefferson, I've talked about this a little bit here and there, but he had his own version of the Bible. And um, basically, he removed everything that was miraculous from the New Testament in his version of the Bible. And uh, the book ended up being entitled The Life and Moral Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Because here's what Jefferson believed about Jesus. This is a quote. He was a man of illegitimate birth, of a benevolent heart, but he had a good heart and an enthusiastic mind 
who set out without pretensions of divinity. So he, he thought, he didn't begin thinking he was the Lord or God, but he says in the end, he believed them, believed he was divine. And it says he was punished capitally for sedition by being gibbeted. So on the gibbet, G-I-B-B-E-T, that is a fancy word for crucifixion. Gibbeted, according to Roman law. And so here, not surprisingly, the point I'm trying to make with all this is here is the way that Jefferson ends his book. They laid Jesus in the tomb and departed. But he leaves him in the tomb. So the resurrection is cut out of Jefferson's Bible because he believed whatever happened to him, that he decayed like any other man. In contrast to that, George Washington had this epitaph on his tombstone, John eleven twenty five. We all know what that is. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's what Washington had. Now, there's quite a difference there. And a lot of people are in Jefferson's court anymore these days, more and more. But I made a statement a while back, a few messages back, I made it a couple times, that the greatest single most important event in all of human history was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll stand by that, except I would like to add this after thinking about this and studying this. I would like to include the, resurrec the resurrection in that event. And the thing is, you really cannot separate the two. And the Bible doesn't. It doesn't separate them historically and significantly. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ never separated. Whenever he talked about his upcoming death, he always included the resurrection when he talked about it. So we had three places in Mark that we looked at. There's 16 times in the Gospels when Jesus predicted his crucifixion, and then he would always include his resurrection. But just to remind you, you don't have to turn back, but Mark 8.31, it says he began, this is the first time in Mark, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then the next chapter, 9.31, he says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he ends again, he shall rise the third day. The next chapter after that, so we have Mark 8, 9, and 10. The next chapter after that, Mark 10, 34. He said this, he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, they'll scourge him, they'll spit on him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. So what I'm saying is every time he talks about, and he gives details about what's going to happen to him in his prediction, his prophecy, he always ends with, he shall rise the third day. After three days, he'll rise again. And the third day, he shall rise again. He always includes that in there. It's a big deal, the resurrection. And I'm saying, I don't think, I would include myself, I'm saying, I don't think we talk enough and make a big enough deal about the resurrection. But I'll tell you, once you begin to look for it in your Bible as you're reading, it is everywhere in the New Testament, in the entire Bible, but especially in the New Testament. And there's this man, I'm going to quote him a couple times tonight, but he has quite a bit to say on this. His name's Wilbur Smith. I don't know if you remember, Merritt Fryer talked about him, he used to like him and talk about him. And actually, I bought a couple of his books as a result of that from way back when. But he's gone off the scene, but he was a very godly man. 
And Wilbur Smith said this, he said, from the first day of its divinely bestowed life, the Christian church has unitedly borne testimony to its faith in the resurrection of Christ. And he said, it is what we may call one of the great fundamental doctrines and convictions of the church. And it's now this is the part that I wanted to really get to tonight. He said it so penetrates the literature of the New Testament. He's saying it's so ingrained everywhere in the New Testament that if you lifted out every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could not be understood. So how important, this is what I want us to get, this is going to be my main thing tonight, is we need to see the importance of the resurrection. And what he's saying is how important is the resurrection, that question? He said, you take, you lift that out of the New Testament and it wouldn't even make sense. That's how important it is. So it's the main content of the teaching and preaching of the apostles. So Peter when you go back, I went back, you go back and you read Acts chapter 2, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first time the Gospels is presented, the bulk of it has to do with the resurrection. And we're going to look at it in a little bit. And Paul, when he was, went to Athens, he's mocked on Mars Hill. When he preached there, you know why he was mocked? It was, he wasn't mocked because he preached repentance, but because he preached on the resurrection of the dead. And they said, they, they heard him talking, and they're like, this babbler, what's he going to say? Let's get him up there on the platform here. He's going to say, is he keeps sending forth these strange gods, Jesus and the resurrection. I'm saying that was Paul's big initial message is the resurrection. And how big a deal, I'm saying, is the resurrection? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, here's how big a deal it is. He says, if Christ is not raised, if the resurrection isn't true, he says what? Your faith is in vain. And that word means worthless. Your faith is worthless. And not only that, he said, if Christ be not raised, you are yet in your sins. That's oh, terrible. That's what he said. Christ be not raised, you're yet in your sins, he says. But not only that, he goes on to add, they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, you think you're going to see him one day? He says, no, they are perished. So a lot of us in here, you've lost loved ones or you will in the future. He's saying if the resurrection, here's how big a deal it is. He's saying if that's not true, you'll never see him. Because all it means is what the atheists like to say, that all they are are just went back to the worms and that's it. I mean, man, where's the hope in that, right? No hope at all in that. And also... He wrote this. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. So, you know, some people, well, Jesus, he just helps you to live morally and you just have, you're going to have a better life because you're going to live cleaner than those old unregenerates to get drunk and all that and it ends up killing them early. But he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he says, we are of all men most miserable. He says, if after the manner of men I have fought with beast at Ephesus, he said, what advantage is that to me? Why did I go through all that for? He says, if the dead don't rise, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So if there is no resurrection, he's like, what is the point of holy living? We may as well, like a lot of people do now, just give yourselves over to drinking to immorality, to sexual, to fornication, all of that stuff. He says, why not just go on and do that if that's the end of it? 
for tomorrow we die. Let me ask you a question. I was thinking about this. So why have, and I'm not saying you have to be like some of us in our past, but why have some of us repented of drinking and partying and living immoral lives? Do, do you think we gave that up because it wasn't pleasurable? Do you think that's the reason, the reason why? Because it just wasn't pleasurable anymore? Because it says this of Moses in Hebrews 11. It says that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So here's the thing. You know, young people think they're just discovering all this pleasure they've been denied. Like they're really smart. And I'm saying the Bible doesn't deny that sin is pleasurable, but what it says is it's only pleasurable for how long? A season, a very short time and then guess what happens well sometimes that sin will lead you into getting disease and illness and you know intoxicated drinking liquor toxins means poison and people that like to drink a lot and get on that path guess what happens they lose their liver and they get poisoned and die happens quite frequently so the thing is, like I said, that pleasure is a short time. It may just be a night or however long it lasts. The thing is, there's a famous message that was preached. No matter what, no matter how well you get along. I mean, Winston Churchill managed to drink his liquor every day and lived to be 92. But guess what For happened for him and everyone else and for all of us? There is going to be a payday someday. It's a famous sermon that was preached. Payday someday because... As I heard a man say, our lives are just that short little dash between two dates that are on a tombstone. And what is that compared to all of eternity? What is that? It's nothing, right? So there's a judgment day coming. Ten out of ten die. The ultimate statistics. All right? You aren't going to get out of that one. Death and taxes, but you're not going to cheat death, are you? Make it out of taxes. But you're not going to cheat death. And so one day there's going to be a judge that will have to stand on the resurrection. And you know who that's going to be? It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. All will come face to face with him one day soon. I don't care if you live, if you're 10 now and you live to be 90 days, that will be soon. Won't it, Mr. Rudy? Our years just fly on by the older we get, don't they? They do. It's just the way it is. And Leonard, yeah, I don't want to leave anybody out. I don't want you to feel like you're on your own, so pick a couple other gray-head people out of here. But, but here's what I'm getting at is, so Paul, this is why he preached what he preached on Mars Hill. I'm leading up to this. You know what he said to these heathen philosophers, these Grecians that like to hear something new all the time? He said this. He said the times of this ignorance God winked at. He says, but now, now, no longer winking at it. Because something happened, a resurrection. But he said, now God commands all men everywhere to repent. And here he says, this is why. Because he's appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And he ends by saying, wherefore he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. And what he's saying is, Jesus has died and he has arisen. He's the awaiting judge. And everyone in this room, saint or sinner, however you end up, you will die and you will rise and you will one day stand before him.
And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, therefore, God is not asking you. He is commanding you, all men everywhere, to repent, to turn from their sins. Because he's right there verified that this is your way out, and this is the only way out. And if you don't take it, the one that was your way out will be your judge. Will be the judge. So we're asking the question, how big a deal is the empty tomb and the resurrection of our Lord? So all four, all but four, take all the major religions, all but four of them are just based on philosophies. Philosophies. But four of the biggest are based on personalities and their teachings. But of those four, only Christianity has an empty tomb. Only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. So Abraham, you're thinking, what are you talking about him in that light? Well, he was the father of Judaism. I mean, that's who the Jews considered to be their father of their religion. In John 8, they said that they were his seed. And they told Jesus, they said, Abraham's our father. They claimed him as the, as the father of their religion. Well, Abraham died. Now, Abraham didn't claim to be he was going to rise from the dead, but he died in 1900 B.C., and his tomb, <laughs> whatever, whatever's left of him is still there. And no resurrection was claimed for him. Buddha, big old Buddha, he ate his last meal when he was 82 years old. So they say, about the age of 82. And it was reported that Buddha, it gave him a lot of indigestion. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Don't exactly know what it was, but that's what they reported. And Buddha was cremated. He was cremated. But none of his followers believed that he was going to be raised from the dead. He didn't. He told his followers, as a matter of fact, once I am dead, to follow no man. So there's no resurrection there. Muhammad, we know the date of his death. He died June 8th, 1632 A.D. at the age of 61. He's got a tomb that still stands at Medina. Thousands and thousands of Muslims go there every year. Devout Muslims, they'll visit his tomb. And he is still there. So you think about it, Abraham, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, all of their tombs are occupied. They have the no vacancy sign flashing above them, right? Only the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ has an empty sign there. And we'll get into the his historicity of how that is a fact. It's not something we have to wonder about or, well, we're just taking someone's legend. I mean, it is... Lawyers have studied this out. There's several famous lawyers through time that it said, we're gonna, one guy is like, when I get enough leisure time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to totally disprove the resurrection. And the guy became a believer. That's happened time after time with many lawyers. In fact, Finney was a lawyer and was able to convince a lot of lawyers of the truth of Christianity just based on they knew how witnesses would be, what they would say and all that. And it just all points, to, it's totally truthful. We'll get into all of that. So we're back to asking, hey, so all of the major religions, there's only one that claim, its founder claims to be risen from the dead. And how big a deal is that empty tune and resurrection? Think about this. Now, this is something that we really, I don't know how much we consider, that every week we are making a uh, declaration or a statement about the resurrection every, every week. Do you know why that is? On the day that we meet. So why do we meet on the first day of the week, every week, instead of on the Sabbath? We call the first day of the week what? 
the Lord's Day. It's the Resurrection Day. That's why we meet on Sunday, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> so we take it for granted. We don't think too much of it because we've grown up in a culture that used to be, I'll say used to be, used to be mostly Christian. And I mean, when I grew up as a kid, they still had what they called the Sunday blue laws. They didn't, when I was a kid, the, the shopping malls weren't open. I hadn't been that long ago. I'm not that old, but you couldn't go shopping and pretty much everybody just took the day off. You didn't work. It's not that way now. Everybody's just kind of up and running like it's just another day of the week. But for a Jew, that was a big deal. Huge step. You think Jews made up most of the early church, didn't they? At the beginning, it was an all-Jewish church. And so to change that day of worship from Saturday to Sunday was huge because Sabbath observance was like one of the main pillars of Judaism. And observing the Sabbath was like watching the Super Bowl. Everybody does it. You're like, I didn't watch it. Well, good. That's probably good. But most people do here, right? And so here's the thing. What would motivate an early church, the early church who were mostly Jews, to move their day of worship to Sunday except an event as crucial as the resurrection? I'm saying, how important is it? Important enough, we've moved. They moved the day of their worship. They took a huge step. That was a big deal. This writer said the majority of the first Christians were of Jewish background and they had been fanatically attached to their Sabbath. He said it took, therefore, something extremely significant to change this habit. It took the resurrection to do it. Yeah, so it's a big deal. It's a lot bigger deal than we probably typically think about, right? Well, we need to think about this. Without the resurrection, we've already said this, but Christianity is not true without it. And why I'm saying that is Jesus staked, he staked everything that he said, everything that he did on the fact that he would rise from the dead. So he made a lot of claims about a lot of things, but the greatest claim that our Lord Jesus Christ made was what? He made the claim that he was God, that he was deity. John 8, 58, he told the Jews, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, he said, ego a me, I am. That would be the Greek for the equivalent of the burning bush. I am that I am. And then in John 10, 30, he said, I and my father are one. And you're like, well, what's the big deal about those two statements? Well, it was a big deal to the Jews that heard him because both times you go back and read those accounts. When he made those statements, you know what their reaction was? It says they picked up stones to stone him. And the second time, it says they picked up stones to stone him again. The first time God supernaturally delivered him from there, or they would have stoned him. He got out of that because it wasn't his time, his place, and God was in control. Got him out of that situation. The second time they picked up those stones, it says Jesus asked them, he said, many good works have I shown you from my father. And he says, for which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, well, for a good work, we don't stone you. Not for that. They said, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, when it came to Jesus, and they asked him for a sign, they said, give us a sign to prove who you are and what gives you the authority. In John 2, it was the case of he's cleaning out the temple, acting like it's his house, my father's house. They're like, okay, you give us a sign. What's the sign that you have a right to do this? And you know what Jesus told him? He said this. 
Here's his answer. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. And John wrote this, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And so the one sign that Jesus pointed to, pointed to all the world that would verify everything he said and did was the sign of the resurrection. Without that, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have to believe anything he said. No one would have. We wouldn't even be sitting here today, right? Wilbur Smith again, he says, he says if our Lord said frequently and with great definitiveness and detail, that after he said, in other words, he said this many times, that after he went up to Jerusalem, he would be put to death, but on the third day he would rise again from the grave. He said, if he said that, which he did, I've read him to you many times, 16 times. And he says, Wilbur Smith said, if he said that, and that this prediction that he said came to pass, he said, then it has always seemed to me that everything else that our Lord ever said must also be true. Because who else would ever say anything like that? And if it didn't happen, but if it did, then everything else, if that could happen and be true, then everything else he said has to be true. And that's something to think about, isn't it? I mean, in a good way and a bad way. Because what did he say? He said, look, I'm not going to be the one to judge you in that day. What did he tell the people? He said, my words will be what will judge you on that day. He's saying, everything I said is true, and I'm speaking for God. And the resurrection verifies that. And that's, it's critical. So God the Father, you know, even though Jesus says, I lay down my life and I take it up again, but that's just, it's God the Father raised him up. I mean, that's what it, because the, you don't split God up again. The Godhead is involved in everything that happens with God. But he raised him up. And in doing that, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, the point I'm trying to make is he verified the resurrection proves everything is true because he verified in doing that everything that Jesus said and did. And especially like we talked about, verified that he was the son of God. That, that doesn't impact us like it did those Jews. That was claiming divinity. What man has ever, who would ever dare to do that? But the resurrection was the father's seal to the truth of what the Lord Jesus claimed. So if he'd have remained in the grave and hadn't been raised, it would have been the father's statement that this man was an imposter. But when he raised him from the grave, it was the father loudly, and it wasn't done in private. It was an, a public declaration that thou art my beloved son, and I declare you to be that. And that's what we have in Romans chapter 1. When you read Romans, it's a great book. In the very first chapter, in almost the first few verses, it says this. Paul says he's writing concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That's how he was declared to be the son of God with power. And not only that, by the spirit of holiness. If he wasn't a holy offering, 
and a sinless, pure, holy God, it would have never happened. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, wrote, The resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. Because you think about it, we just kind of grow up in this and grow up hearing it. I'm saying, but you think about what we're being asked to believe. Is anybody in here, has anyone ever seen anybody resurrected? Not a single person. Medical science, they can't even, they can't treat most illnesses. And then death, they can do nothing with death. And God's asking us, that's, that's what the, the gospel is. We have to believe that Jesus Christ, the God-man, conquered death and rose. No one else has done that. Have you, we've never seen that happen. And we're required to believe that. And if I stood up here, think about what he said and did, our Lord. Now, I stood up here in his pulpit and predicted that a group of Muslims from Louisville, I'm saying this is what's going to happen. They're going to meet me when I'm down, when I'm going to be at McDonald's on Saturday, Saturday night, ordering a Big Mac. And I'm telling you ahead of time, they're going to come up behind me. They're going to chop, up, chop off my head. But in three days, I'm going to be all right back in one piece and up here preaching the gospel. Well, I'm telling you. The next thing that would happen, <laughs> it'd be my last time in the pulpit for one thing, and then I'd be finding my days spent at seven counties. If you don't know what seven counties is, that's the, uh, that's the medical people here around this area take care of medical people. I'd be in seven counties receiving comfort and counsel and some medication, right? And also, there's nobody I wouldn't, if I was y'all, I wouldn't trust another thing I said if I did something like that. Because guess what? For number one, I hate Big Macs. I wouldn't be at that McDonald's and on and on and on. Nobody's going to cut my head off and I'm not going to be put back in one piece in three days. <laughs> so I'm saying the, what the Lord did. Listen, back to William, Wilbur Smith. I guess this is the last Wilbur Smith quote I have. But listen to this. He said that Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem to die is not so remarkable. He's saying the fact he just predicted his death, he could have almost said that with all the hatred that was there. He says even though all the details that he threw in that would happen, he's saying that is just an amazing prophetic utterance that came from him. He would say that. That's a phenomenon, he said. But he said when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day when he was crucified, when he said that, though, he said, he said something that only a fool would dare say if he expected any longer the devotion of any disciples. If Jesus, after his followers, to make a prediction like that, only a fool would say that if you wanted people to continue to follow you. Unless, he said, he was sure he was going to rise. And he was, wasn't he? He wasn't wondering. And he's, and listen, he added, he added this at the end. He said, no founder of any world religion known to men ever dared to say a thing like that. I mean, we have got a unique religion because it's from God. Amen. I mean, there's nothing like it. This is not philosophy. We're talking supernatural. Well, there's philosophy involved, but it's truth, real truth. So the resurrection, it's the central doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the essence of the gospel. And <laughs> my one friend had, had to put it in this category. I want to use his categories. I like them. But there's three ways to describe Jesus' resurrection. And one is it's a fulfillment of Scripture. 
And two is it's a historical fact. And three, which is what I can get the most excited about, is the theological truth involved in it and the impact that it has on us as Christians. I mean, that's something to get back to throwing your Bible up in the air. But I want to look first of all is, and they're all very important. There's not one's more important than another. Because you need to be grounded in the fact, first of all, that we're going to look at is that his resurrection is a fulfillment of Scripture. So the resurrection, unlike a lot of accounts, it's recorded in all four Gospels. So not everything's recorded in all four Gospels, but it is in detail. And there's differences between all four accounts, which even more lends to the credibility of the Gospel witness of the resurrection. But in John's Gospel, when Peter and John, when they heard from Mary Magdalene, that the stone was rolled away and Jesus' body was not in the tomb. And she comes and she tells them, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. They come and tell, she comes and tells Peter and John that. And it says they both ran to the tomb. But apparently John was a little slimmer or whatever. I don't know what his thing was, but he got there quicker than Peter, it says. And John got outside the, the tomb a little more cautious and he just looks in and he sees, it says, those grave clothes lying there. Good old Peter, he catches up with John and he doesn't just look in, he bolts in and goes into the tomb. And then John follows him in there. <laughs> but here's the thing. They both see those clothes laying there and they aren't able to tie it all together. At least they're not able to tie it in with Scripture because it says this. It says, for as yet they did not know the Scripture. And the Scripture said this, that he must rise again from the dead. So the importance there is the scripture said that he must rise again from the dead. He must. It had to happen. And why is that? Here's the point. Because the scripture had to be fulfilled. It's always fulfilled is the big deal about this to the letter. Isn't it? That's what our faith is. in. that's why we claim promises that can know God is not a man that he should lie. This same Lord that predicted his death, burial, and resurrection in three days, and it happened, is not going to lie to me when he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. As long as we meet the conditions, he will do it. That word is just as much gold as when he predicted his own resurrection. Everything he said is true that we can trust in, 100%. And Jesus said in Matthew 12 that the whole purpose of the book of Jonah we're saying it fulfills scriptures. The whole purpose of the book of Jonah was to give a sign that had to be fulfilled in him. Because he said this in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And he says, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he came out. He's saying it's fulfillment of Scripture. Old Testament's pointing to that. That's what he's talking about. When the two disciples, they're walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking, Jesus comes up to them, he saddles up to them, and he's asking them, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God. And we thought that he was going to be the Messiah, the one that was going to bring us redemption. And they're like, but it's been three days. They don't even realize what they're saying. But it's been three days since this happened, since his death. And some silly women went to the tomb. His body wasn't there. And they claimed that they saw a vision of angels that told him he was alive. 
And they're like, even Peter and John, they said some of us, well, it's Peter and John, we know that from the other account. Even Peter and John went and got sucked into all of this. Yeah, they went there, but they didn't see him. And that's what they tell Jesus. And so how did Jesus answer them? How did he answer those two when they said that to him? He didn't say, you know, well, look, strange things happen and you should believe them. He didn't tell them that because here's the thing. Here's the point I'm trying to make. We don't have to believe strange things or miracles that claim they're from the Lord if they don't line up with the scripture. Aren't we told in Deuteronomy 12, if a prophet comes and performs a sign or a wonder, but he's leading you away from the scripture, stone the guy, have nothing to do with him. We're back to what we said Sunday. We better be rightly dividing and knowing the word of God to keep ourselves from that strong delusion that's coming on this earth. But here's how he answered them when they said what they said. He said, oh, foolish ones or fools and slow and hard to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He gets on them for not knowing the Bible. And he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And then it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So what we need to see is he didn't get on him, did he? He didn't say, why didn't you guys believe the empty tomb? That's not what he got on him about, what the report about the empty tomb. He says, but because you didn't believe the scriptures. So that has got to be the foundation of all that we believe. Because all the empty tomb did was what? It verified what the scriptures said. So it didn't, the empty tomb didn't verify the women and Peter and John. Because we, you need to think about it. So there could have been a lot of reasons for an empty tomb, couldn't there? But the scriptures are the ones that said there was going to be an empty tomb because the scriptures are pointing the fact that he was going to die, be buried, and raised again. And so Jesus says, this is where the grounding has to take place. So this is not tonight to fall asleep. I'm saying it's essential we see that it is a scriptural foundation about the resurrection. Because believe me, there are groups out there that don't believe in the resurrection and they are going to threaten you. And why do you think what you think? And you better be able to know it's because the word of God says so. And I know it's true. Do whatever you want to to me. But I know the Bible is true. That's why I believe it. Not because mama told me or my church just had it around. It's because it is I'm grounded in this is what the Bible says. And that's the way the apostles went forth and the church went forth. And we'll see the emphasis is on the resurrection is true. And this is the gospel because the scriptures say it. And that's what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, here's how you can know what the gospel is supposed to be and what it's supposed to sound like. So if you would turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is on the resurrection. He's is a whole bunch of verses to it in a whole chapter, the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote to them and said this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. He says, and it's the gospel which you received. And he says, this is the gospel receiving the right gospel is going to do what for you? It's wherein you stand. It's going to keep you from falling. He says, by which you are saved, that gospel I preached. That's what will save you if you keep in memory what I preached unto you unless you have believed in vain. 
In verse 3 he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So he's saying this is why you believe the gospel, because these things happened according to the scriptures. And he's saying to say otherwise, you got to be grounded in the word because he says to say other than that, which we have a lot of people today, they, they think you can be a Christian and deny the bodily resurrection of the Lord. Well, he's just here in presence. He's still here in spirit. But no, it's the bodily resurrection, because look what Paul says over in verse 12. He says, now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, he says, how say some among you? It was already going on there that there is no resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on to talk about, well, if there's no resurrection of what they're saying is true, then that means Christ isn't risen from the dead. And he gives seven arguments on why you had better get away from that is what he goes on to say. He's saying it's essential to know and understand the resurrection and the scriptural reason for it. So on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, like I said, the thrust of Peter's presentation is that Jesus was crucified and that he rose from the dead according to the scripture. It's the majority of what he talked about. And I want to look at that next. If you would turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll see the importance. The point would be the importance the early church and the apostles put on the resurrection. So this is the first sermon that was preached after the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And look in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And Peter says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being determined by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, there it begins, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And here he starts quoting Psalm 16. For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad, Moreover, also, he said, my flesh shall rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will I suffer thine holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. That was all Psalm 16. It's not a very long psalm. And he goes on to say, so Peter just quoted that psalm. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And he's seen this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And he says it again. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof he says, we are all witnesses. And therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heavens, the heavens, but he himself said himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He gives it right there. He's saying he's quoting Psalm 16 and he's I think it's Psalm 112. He's quoting these psalms. He's saying this is how we know this has happened. David prophesied that this would happen. The biggest bulk of his first sermon is to show the Jews that the resurrection, this man, God has raised him up. He said it twice and verified it by the scriptures. And then he adds, well, we've seen him, but that isn't his proof, is it? He doesn't start with that. He adds that in. His whole point was this was predicted in the Old Testament. You can trust that. And Paul did the same thing. Paul did the same thing. His appeal to <laughs> the audience he, his, he spoke to on his missionary journeys was the scriptures. And he spoke prominently of the resurrection. That's the gospel message. And to leave that out, you haven't preached the gospel. To just talk about his death for your sins. That resurrection from the dead is, the, is huge. Like I said, you can't separate the two. The Bible never does. And so I want us to look at two other places in Acts. If you will look at Acts 13, and we'll look at Paul. This is his first missionary sermon. In Acts 13, beginning in verse 26. And look what he says. Paul says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. He's speaking to Israel. He's gone to a synagogue. And whosoever among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which we read every Sabbath day. He again, look, Paul appeals to the scriptures. He says, they have fulfilled them in condemning them. He's saying there's the first fulfillment of the scriptures. They fulfilled him in killing him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, he's probably referring there to Isaiah 53. It says they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a sepulcher. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. In verse 32, he says, We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, look what it says, verse 33, God has fulfilled those promises, those Old Testament promises, the same unto us, their children. How? In that he has raised up Jesus again. And here he quotes the psalm, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now to no more return to corruption, he said on this wise, I give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he also said in another psalm, You will not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. That whole sermon, whatever you want to call it, is just filled with the resurrection, isn't it? And it's filled not just talking about that God raised him again. He says that several times. But what is, how does he prove it? What is his emphasis? He talks again about the witnesses. But his major proof and his underlying emphasis is on the scriptures. That the scriptures were fulfilled all through that. That's the big point. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And if we would just turn back to Acts 26. And this would be the last place we'll look at. 
Look what it says in Acts 26. Acts 26 and beginning in verse 20. Here Paul is before Agrippa, King Agrippa. And it says, Acts 26, 20, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works suitable for repentance. And for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. And he says, having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day witnessing. And here's what Paul would do, both to small and great. He talked to anybody about the gospel, saying none other things. And what did he say then? Those which the prophets and Moses, in other words, the scriptures, which did say should come. And what was that? That Christ should suffer and that he should be the first, should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And look, here's the response. And as he thus spake for himself, Fester said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. You're crazy. Much learning does make you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knows of these things before whom I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou what? The prophets? He says, I know you believe. And then King Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And as George Woodfield said, that's the worst position to be and end in, almost, because you'll perish just as much as the one that never came close. But what's Paul, what's his emphasis? Once again, I'm saying, are we seeing that? I mean, we could go on with this, but I'm saying his emphasis in his preaching and his gospel presentation was what? This is a fulfillment of the scriptures that God has raised him from the dead. And that's how you can know that it's true. The thing back in that Acts 2.22 with Peter, Peter says that it was not possible. I don't know, I should have said this while we were there, but in verse 24 of Acts 2.24, he said it was not possible for death to hold him. And the Greek is basically saying not possible. It means it's impossible. It was impossible, Peter told those Jews on his first sermon, it was impossible for death to to hold him, that he had to be raised. And why did he say that? His reason that he gave was, is because that truth that he had to be raised, impossible for him to stay dead, was because of what the scriptures said. That's the reason he gave. Because the first word he says in the next verse is, he says it's impossible for death to hold him for. He says for, that means because, or here's the reason. And the reason he says is because of what the psalmist said, David. The scripture must be fulfilled. God's holy one cannot see corruption. So that's the reason he gives. He said it's impossible for him to stay in the grave. It'd be like, I've never heard anything like that. Those got people had to be. He said, well, look, here's the reason that it's not possible, it was impossible for him to stay dead because the Bible, God said it. <laughs> the same God that told Abraham at 99 years old and Sarah at 90, you're going to have a child. You believe that, don't you? <laughs> Gave you a child out of nothing. Well, he raised a man from the dead, never been done before because nothing's impossible with God. But it's a fulfillment of Scripture. That's the point. 
So the point we made tonight, we're going to stop here, is why did God raise Jesus from the dead? First and foremost, I'm saying, is because it was a scriptural necessity. So I said 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter is about the resurrection from the dead. And Paul's making an argument for that. A very good argument and a logical argument. But it's interesting that how does he start the argument out? That this all happened according to the scriptures. And he moves from there. So I'm saying that's the basis we need to see. That's the point. The unchanging word of God. It's not philosophy. Our faith is not based on philosophy, how we feel about things. Can we scientifically prove it? Because science changes all the time. But our faith is built on the unchanging word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. My words will never pass away. Psalm 119.89 says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And that's how we can know the truth of the resurrection. And you may one day need to know that. And why? And what that tells us then is, the implication there is, that if we know based on Scripture, because I've never seen the Lord, I have never seen Him. And I don't think anyone in here has either. So how do you know for sure He's alive? And all this is true. We know that because of what the Bible says. And so because we know it's true, we can though know for, surety, for a surety that He ever lives and He is alive to make intercession for us as we sit here. At all times when we're in a trial, we can really know because we know that he has been, according to the Bible, raised from the dead and he is alive, unlike Buddha, Confucius and Muhammad and all of them, that he can, when we're trusting him, still stretch forth his hand to heal just like he did for the leper, for the centurion's servant, for Jairus' daughter. He is still alive with an arm to stretch forth and heal. And he'll do that. Why? Because we've got God's word that he was dead and buried and is alive. That's the point. And that's point one. You'd be like, glad to get off that one. And point two and three be just as good, right? But I always like that song. Steve Green and Annie, what's her name, wrote it. And Steve Green had it. Hear the bells ringing. They're singing that you can be born again. Hear the bells ringing. They're singing. Christ is risen from the dead. And the angel up on the tombstone said, He has risen, just as he said, quickly now. I wish I could sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. Joy to the world. I'd say joy to us. Amen. That ought to bring a smile back on our face. Let's think about that for a while. <laughs> Amen. I'm serious about that. Joy to the world, he is risen. Hallelujah is how the song goes. And then they have the other verse. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing. Hear them? That you can be healed right now. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing. Christ, he will reveal it now. The angels, they all surround us and they are ministering Jesus' power. Quickly now, reach out and receive it. For this could be your glorious hour. Amen. It really could be because he is alive. Amen. That's right. Joy to the world. He is risen. Hallelujah. He's risen. Hallelujah. He's risen. Hallelujah. The angel up on the tombstone said he has risen just as he said. Quickly now go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. Joy to the world. He has risen. Hallelujah. He's risen. Hallelujah. He has risen. 
risen. And all the saints said, Amen. Amen. And I'm sure you've got a good resurrection song to sing, don't you? Come on up here, Ben. Close your Bibles. Stay into your feet. And we'll pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us, this assurance that our Lord and Savior, he was raised again for our justification, that you've approved of the penalty that he's paid for our sins. You've approved of his life, and we can trust that every word he said is true. And we just thank you for that, Lord, that we serve a risen Savior. Amen. And he lives inside us tonight. And we just thank you, Lord, for, for all that you've shown us in your, your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.